0: Hey everyone, Jamie here, wanted to quickly hop on before the start of the episode to sneak in a quick announcement about something special that I'm offering next Sunday, May 8th. And what that is, is going to be an opportunity to witness and participate in a full length intuitive reading. Uh, So I'm going to be inviting a special guest who some of you are probably familiar with, you real world heads out there. I'm going to be welcoming one of the stars of the iconic, original, real world Las Vegas, Arissa Hill, into a Zoom room. Where she's going to be bringing in a a deep penetrating question she wants to explore. Uh, Arissa underwent a difficult experience a few years ago, and she she has a question about about what she's meant to learn from it, about how to navigate it constructively, about how it serves her larger spiritual journey. And so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to hold and explore her question and we're going to go on a journey together to help her find some answers. And what I want to do with this intuitive reading is really open up the space for people out there to come and to first witness the reading. So people will be holding silent space for Arissa as she goes on her journey. And in doing so, to participate in the energy of their reading. So for those of you who maybe follow me on Instagram, you know in the past I've done quick hit questions on Instagram Lives. I've even answered quick hit questions in my stories. And a lot of you know that when you have the opportunity to witness someone else's work and to hear about what they're struggling with and to experience them receiving transmissions of energy that are helpful to them, it can also benefit you. You get the benefit of the healing that they are also receiving. And I think it's an amazing opportunity and way for us to see how we're actually all connected and how we're all dealing with our own struggles and, and conflicts and, and life themes in that oftentimes we're, we have more in common than we outwardly assume or feel otherwise. So what I'm going to do is once the intuitive reading is over, I'm going to open the space up for people to reflect upon or ask questions about wherever the reading took them. So whatever topics come up, whatever themes come up, if people have questions about it, they'll be welcome to ask those questions. If the reading took people to a specific place inside themselves that they want reflection about or feedback about, or if they have questions about how it relates to them, you'll have space to, ask those questions of me and so in that way what's going to happen is Arissa's individual intuitive reading is really going to be held as a catalyst for the larger group and held as an opportunity for people to get something out of it for themselves. My deeper intention with this is really to create a space in this world where it feels like there's just so much division right now and there's just such a sense of chaos and like the world is on fire to create a space where we can consciously enter a field that is about unity, that is about seeing ourselves in the other, and that is about collective healing. So having said all that, this is the first place that I'm mentioning it. I am going to send an email out soon to my list letting people know about this. Space is going to be limited. It's basically going to be free. And what I mean by that is um, it is going to be on a donation basis with all the proceeds going to charity. I'm going to donate all the proceeds to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is a great charity that uh, helps to find missing kids, reduce child sexual exploitation and prevent child victimization. So I'll be asking for, you know, anywhere from a five to twenty-five dollar donation just to hold your spot. And once you've registered, you'll get information about all the details of how to show up and 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 claim your seat at the at the at the Zoom reading. So again, this is gonna be Sunday, May 8th. It's gonna be from 1230 to 230 p.m. Pacific. If you are interested in this, if this is pinging your ear as I talk about it, definitely send me an email and let me know, jamie at hollywoodreadings.com. And then like I said, I'll send you an email with information about how to register. Like I said, space is going to be limited. So definitely reach out to me um, if it is pinging your ears. And definitely also reach out to me if you have any questions. But that said, I will now roll on out the latest episode. Oh, and by the way, one last note too. Uh, I'm pretty sure that tomorrow, meaning Wednesday, I did an appearance on the podcast What Else Is Going On with Taria Faison who's been a guest on my podcast. I'm sure all of you know her and many of you love her. We got so deep into so many topics. So if you're wanting more Summer House content from me, go find that episode. If you're wanting to hear a conversation that goes into the energetics of the Chris Rock Will Smith fight, go into that episode. If you're wanting to hear more about Jersey, even some retroactive Beverly Hills stuff. I mean, it was it was a true deep dive conversation. I can't even remember everything we went into. So if you're looking for more content from me, go check out what else is going on. It should be released Wednesday. Uh, I'm so bad with dates. April 27th and enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Okay, everybody, I'll see you on the flip side. Bye. Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath, which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people and the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. Very excited about today's episode because we're going to be combining two topics that are very near and dear to my heart. One, of course, is the Housewives. And in particular, the Real Housewives of Orange County, which, though I know it has not been at its peak these last few seasons, historically, it is my favorite franchise. And actually, I don't think we've had an episode yet where we've talked about this particular franchise i think in part because it's not necessarily been the most noteworthy franchise this last few years and the second topic i think appropriately enough is money and certainly the role that money plays on the real housewives of orange county the role that money plays on the real housewives and perhaps even just money in general since it is a topic that tends to have a lot of stigma attached to it. It's certainly charged for a lot of people. There could be a lot of shame around it. So money is something that I absolutely love talking about and kind of taking some of that charge out of it for people. And I've certainly been on my own journey with money as we all have. So with that said, I've got two guests today, one of whom is new to the podcast, and I'll introduce her first. And she has a very particular and expert viewpoint on these matters. I first met her through my work. She came to me for a reading and came to discover that she has actually a very powerful and vibrant business called The Financial Diet, which is basically a multimedia platform that's all about educating people, and I think in particular women, about money and financial empowerment. And after we met through the reading, I would get all sorts of really interesting and provocative and thought-provoking messages about her experience of the role money was playing on the different shows or with the different housewives. And it just seemed like a no brainer to have her on to deep dive this topic. So, with all that said, please welcome Chelsea Fagan to the deep dive. Hi, Chelsea.
1: Hi, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here.
0: Great. How are you today?
1: I'm doing really well. It's extremely dreary outside here in Manhattan, but, you know, staying positive.
0: All right, good. And then our second guest, who at this point barely needs any introduction. She's a staple on the deep dive. We all know and love her. Piper Sample. Hi, Piper.
2: Hi, Jamie. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, everyone. And Piper,
0: you also have a very unique vantage point into this universe because you actually live. And work in Orange county, and uh, which is interesting, right? Because you are maybe not what we think of as the typical Orange County resident, at least as portrayed on these shows, certainly politically, certainly, spiritually, certainly in matters of money. So
2: yeah, not my circle, just to be clear.
0: <laughs> and yet you're living in it.
2: It's an orbit that i <laughs> I'm in an outside circle of, for sure, but I love the viewpoint.
0: Well, and it is kind of interesting, not that we need to get into this now, but if, it's almost like if I were working with you, it, it is kind of interesting to think of you as living in this orbit, considering that it really isn't something that feels like a natural fit for you. It just suddenly makes me curious about in the place where we interpret life as a dream and we look at the symbolism of everything, what does it mean for you in terms of personal archetype and history and story that this really is where you're living and it's where you've been living for quite a while?
2: It's a really good question. <laughs> Definitely outside of something for sure.
0: And it's also interesting because you've shared with me, this is actually why you watch The Housewives because when The Real Housewives of Orange County started, you wanted to see how it was being portrayed, you know, this this world and this community you live in on TV. And that's what kind of brought you into this universe.
2: And it makes up I mean, their universe makes up maybe about half of the demographics, you know, the it's a different tier, let's just say that that I live in and I'm in the mid-range, Orange County as a whole. And I am fascinated with the tier that is represented in this, you know, I of course filter in and out of contact with this tier through maybe fundraising events or events that I'm a part of, but nowhere near how they operate. So I'd love to here Chelsea's perspective related to how they represent themselves in, in, in that sort of financial sphere, political makeup. Yeah. And to always, I'm always interested in what you drop into, Jamie.
0: Well, and it's also interesting, I guess the last thing I'll say up top, just as we're laying the groundwork for wherever this is going to go, you do remind me that Orange County is really interesting because it has evolved over time. And it really does have roots, I I believe, in like a bohemian, artistic, creative culture at one time, and that it's really kind of changed over the years into sort of what we regard it as now, right?
2: Well, I think especially the area that a lot of these women are, you know, because Laguna, that Laguna Beach area was definitely more of a a bohemian artist, the canyon, you know, that lifestyle. And then as the land started being developed, I grew up here also. So I saw Newport Coast, you know, the areas that those houses didn't exist when I was growing up. These were the places where we rode horses and you went to the beach and there were characters that Laguna was a I don't think it was ever like Venice, but it it definitely had a a different vibe to it than it does now based on who owns stores there. And I did massage for a long time. So I used to travel to people's homes. And especially as they were building up out there, some of these people became more clients. And it was interesting to feel how it became... I don't know. I I guess I don't want to say it got taken over, but there's definitely a shift in... It doesn't feel like it did when I grew up here. The Dubros took over.
0: And then Chelsea, just to give people some context for you, like I said, you have this really, what to me feels like very powerful, like I said, very vibrant, alive business. And I'm just so curious if you could maybe share a little bit about how the financial diet came to be. I mean, I'm assuming this must have been born, you know, in large part from your own journey. Can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, how, how you conceived of this and just where it all came from?
1: Yeah. So for context, The Financial Diet, my company, is a small independent media company based out of New York City, where I live. And we sort of specialize in financial education, primarily for younger adult women. You're right that it came out of my personal experience with money, which was always quite negative, And I had quite a lot of financial troubles. And when I started The Financial Diet, it was actually just initially a personal blog to hold myself accountable. I was working for another media company. and already published a book and gotten you know, a, a small but sizable enough to hold me accountable following online. So I started the blog uh, just to kind of have a reason to follow through on some of my financial goals. Because even though I had, you know, not a high paying job, but I had a steady job with a paycheck, I had had some professional success. I was still in a very fraught relationship with money, wasn't managing it very well. And the financial diet just very quickly grew out of that initial personal blog and became uh, what it is today, which is a thriving small media business.
0: So does that mean that the blog was a vehicle for you continuing to work through your self-described fraught relationship with money?
1: Yes, it was. Again, I was working at another media company. And I, in addition to my own negative relationship with money at the time, it was uh, summer 2014, there really weren't a ton of financial media resources for women. Most of it was targeted at men. Most of it was targeted at older men at that. And this the sort of idea of talking about money in a very kind of conversational or editorial way, which is how we talk about it. A lot of our most popular videos on YouTube, for example, are related to the financial aspect of some sort of cultural phenomenon. We've talked about the housewives, for example, um, but are not, you know, the very sort of bone dry financial 101, that stuff didn't really exist. And I noticed also at my um, main job that, you know, I really, we talked about everything in media um, as it pertained to young adult women's lives, but we didn't talk about money. That was in many ways, I think even more taboo than talking about sex or talking about drug and alcohol use or all these other things, which should be nominally more difficult for women to talk about. But money was most absent from the conversation.
0: And I'm so curious in terms of The difference in the conversation around money in terms of how it's directed towards women or young women versus men. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, what is the quality of that difference for you?
1: So, gender roles within finances, I've always found extremely fascinating because, so, most people statistically will end up in heterosexual long term partnerships of some kind um, where money is a huge factor. And Women, even in households where they earn more, where they're more educated, uh, typically don't manage the long-term finances. But women, on aggregate, manage all of these sort of day-to-day money management, balancing the checkbook, you know, shopping, consumer decisions, all of these things. So we have a, a, a very specific dynamic around money that is gendered in a way, sort of from the era where women really didn't work very much outside of the home weren't even allowed to have you know their own credit card without their husband co-signing on it but we're in an era where women are often earning equal to or or more than a man does and the sort of long-term decision making is still sort of default regarded as something a man is going to be better at, more apt at. And the thing is, when you raise children, uh, generally speaking, in different ways, when you give men more tools to handle long-term financial planning, as is sort of generally the the average experience, they are going to be naturally more suited to it as adults. So there's a really bad self-perpetuating cycle where women are sort of taught from a young age that they're just inherently not good at money which I think is uh, also tied up in the fact that most people think that being good with money or managing finances is, is a question of math. And there's almost literally no math involved. And the math that is there, you can just have an app do it. So it's not sort of equivalent to, you know having an aptitude for STEM careers or something like that. But we, we teach women a very specific narrative about money and then are sort of surprised when they fulfill that narrative.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I find this so fascinating and feel like I could talk to you about this for hours. What I will say just in hearing you speak, what I kind of suddenly felt too in the collective was also and I'm curious to get your feedback, whether this is true, like sort of dropping myself into the point of view of, you know, a potential woman client of yours, let's say, or a follower of yours, almost like a shame around like my willingness to take responsibility for my money in an empowered way, like that there's almost something taboo or wrong about like, who am I to step into this sort of empowered role and relationship to my money?
1: Shame is probably the most defining emotion that we find in people, whether it's shame about what you don't know or shame about what you did or shame about the questions even that you have to ask. I mean, a lot of people coming to us will ask questions like, what is a 401k? And these are not, you know, we, we don't gain these, we don't learn these things in school. So it's not embarrassing to not know. But I think a lot of women in particular reach a certain age in adulthood And again, we're talking about women who are educated, women who have, in many cases, you know, professional jobs that pay fairly competitively, that don't even know how to sign up for their own retirement plan, you know, and I think that there's, a huge amount of shame in that, and I think the the tragedy of it is that they're taking on the shame for what is ultimately the failure of people who the people who raised them, who educated them, the school system who produced them. Like, it's no surprise that they would be finding themselves in adulthood with very few skills in this in this area.
0: Yeah, and is it going to be turned against me if I do step into powered relationship with this, and if I do ask questions? Yeah, if I want to take responsibility for this, what what am I going to get called? What am I going to get labeled as? Because you you are you're pushing against. A narrative, right? Even if it's unspoken, you're pushing against something. So, yeah, I just could kind of feel the flavor of that.
1: Well, and I, I, one thing to say on that note is that it's sad to look at the numbers, but there's a lot of data out there about women earning more in relationships and having financial power in heterosexual relationships, actually on aggregate, uh, resulting in more divorces, you know, more separations. It's, I think, for men, especially uh, raised in that very sort of patriarchal idea of money as being sort of the center of their value and masculinity it's still to this day extremely difficult for men i think in many cases to deal with a woman who
2: is very financially empowered yeah that's i was thinking that it's like it's you know money equals power in a lot of communities and power is threatening to people that aren't on board with empowering others where it's more of a competitive schema rather than Yes, more, you know, let me support you make more because then we can do something with it. So, yeah, I I loved hearing what you were saying there about kind of the how that system.
0: And it's so interesting because this does really dovetail into so much of what we see on the housewives and i was thinking about the fact you know in preparation for this episode that money really is the unofficial co-star of this show i mean even its very inception And I kind of chuckle at this because, for me, I really can't even think of a single housewife whose life is actually aspirational to me. But it was conceived as an aspirational show, you know, where we're watching aspirational lifestyles behind the gates. And so, inherent to that is this notion of we're watching women or families with money, right? So, it's like bred into the very framework of the show. And then, of course, as it's evolved... So much of the conversation is about whose money is real, whose money isn't real. And then, of course, just to even what you're speaking to, Chelsea, part of what I love about the show is watching some of these women go from being like dependent on their husbands, you know, kind of second tier in the structure of their family, literally becoming the star of the show, generating income for themselves. And, you know, in the cases of women like Tamara, for example, I feel like getting the financial independence necessary to actually leave and create a life for herself that is much more authentic and congruent than the life she would have had otherwise. Or even someone like Alexis, you know, whose time on the show was short. And I don't know that she necessarily kind of engineered it towards financial independence, but you could still or Jennifer Aiden's another great example of what's happening on New Jersey, you could see these women who by virtue of having this platform, and having a vehicle where she is the star of the show, she has this opportunity to develop her stronger voice to come into more of her own independence. So there's just a lot at play, even within the Housewives universe. And then of course, of course, as I was taking notes, I mean, the two words I kept hearing over and over were Jen Shaw, and like who's literally most likely about to go to prison because of her quest for money and what money means to her. And presumably her shame around money that she's trying to outrun. You know, obviously, there's a lot of charge and heat for her around what it means to have enough money and to afford the thing. So it's just so baked in to the show. And I feel like there is a way that we talk about it, usually kind of lightly and glibly, but we don't really talk about it, about what this really means, about like what we're watching on these different franchises, specifically as it relates to money.
1: I agree. <laughs> No, I think there's a lot in there, and I always loved you. In previous episodes, I've heard you break down uh, some of the women that you felt distinctly benefited from that dynamic. Like you mentioned, Tamra, how like clearly that woman is so much better off now than she would have been otherwise. But it is fascinating how how it can go either way for these women in such a powerful way.
0: Well, it reminds me, Osho has this great quote that I love about money, where someone asked him something like, I, I forget what the question was, but basically his response was, "Look." if you're happy, money is going to make you happier. If you're unhappy, money is going to make you unhappier, you know? And so, it's really not even so... Money, to me, it's kind of like, in some ways, it's inanimate thing. It's like a brick and mortar building. It really only has the emotional meaning and currency that each one of us assigns it. I mean, that's not totally true, obviously, because there's sort of cultural and larger systems that place value on it. But you know, there's a point that I'm making here that, you know, I think like with everything in life, it's it's sort of like what we bring to it and what our relationship to it is that in large part is going to define what our relationship to it continues to be. So to me, it kind of makes sense that, yeah, I think the different women's trajectories with the show in large part is kind of a reflection of how they're coming to it and what they're coming to it with and what they're willing to sort of create for themselves and do they have that willingness to put it to productive use or is it going to be a vehicle for them just to kind of crash even further and burn or in the case of someone like Luann it almost feels like both at the same time which is so interesting
2: well for me as you were talking about it I especially when you linked it to you know like Osho's theory It's like, I've always seen it as a reflection. It helps us reflect how we feel about flow, how we hold on to something, how we let something go. Like, you know, whenever I think about this in the context of working with people, it's like, it reflects both how they were socialized, like their relationship with it. And in other words, like how they were socialized to think about wealth or money in general, what it affords them, what it allows them, but how easy it is to have it you know, flow towards them and how easy it is to then release it back out. And like you said, what is it being used to promote or support? You know, is it purely just an individual, like, I have more things? Or is it like, I want this money to go and support, you know, something else that could use the support that this privilege now allows me to offer to others. So watching it from the Housewives kind of, you know, linking it there, it's like, it never fails across my mind. What are these women doing on this show, exposing themselves like this, you know, like, really, what is driving this? And, you know, it usually comes down to a paycheck, you know, this happens to be a job, but it's also there's something about being known. And in Orange County, being known, you know, like, at least in the circles that are sort of orbiting, like I said, around me, it's like, who has more and what are they doing with it? You know, it seems to be the question that people are asking.
0: Well, maybe this is like a really natural segue to get in more specifically to Orange County. And I think to get into the woman who at this point is the centerpiece of Orange County, certainly Bravo has put a lot of stock in her return to the series as kind of the saving grace of the series. And I know she can be polarizing. She's someone who's definitely brought up a lot of different feelings in me over the years. Of course, I'm speaking about none other than Miss Heather Dubrow. There's so much to say about her, not just her, her and Terry. You know, the Dubrows as an entity. I'll just say up top, because you were talking about this notion of having more and how much do you have, Terry's always been really interesting to me because I find myself... Triggered by him in a way that I'm not usually triggered where I just see, and I want to say, like, I am <laughs> by no means am I like anti-consume. I'm a consumer. You know what I mean? I consume. I love things. I love nice things. I am not holding myself on any kind of moral high ground when it comes to the stuff at all. And I'm sure if you look at my life and how I live it, I'm sure there's like a thousand and one ways it's unconsciously wasteful and all that, but So I don't usually think like this, but there's something with Terry in particular where like when I take him in and experience him, I experience him kind of as the ultimate consumer, like consuming for the sake of consuming. Like he always just strikes me as this guy. I always just see him sitting at a table, shoveling food into his mouth, not because he's hungry, not even because he likes it, but just because he, I want what I want and I want more of it. It just feels so gluttonous. It like, it will turn my stomach when I feel into it. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there just as kind of like a little overture. And it it does. It makes me curious. What is it about Terry... That draws Heather in like their relationship is interesting to me. But having said that, I know before we were recording, Chelsea, you were saying I know that you've had a long standing fascination with Heather. And I know you were saying before recording, you're actually enjoying the season and you're enjoying her. So maybe we can just sort of start there. Like, where are you maybe historically with Heather and where she is now in terms of this season on the show?
1: I'm obsessed with Heather Dubrow. I truly am. I find her to be the most compelling person (laughs) that has ever been on my, well, no, okay. I'm no, I'll tone that down. I don't know the most, but you know, people talk a lot. I'm a big, uh, OG Housewives fan. I've watched almost all the franchises and I know that when we talk about like the greatest housewives, we talk about like a Bethany, a Nini, like, and I do think those are like the biggest stars. I think they're the most, they make the best television. They're the best characters, maybe. They're the funniest, whatever it might be. But I think in terms of what sort of the paradigm of a housewife is in a vacuum in this context, no one embodies it like Heather, like the extent to which that woman exercises control in all things, like from her physical appearance, to her diet, to her, you know, her presentation, you know, on television, to, you know, the scenes that she does with her family, to the way that she designed her house, which someone on Twitter referred to as looking like the first class uh, lounge at like the United uh, Wing uh, at an airport. Like it very much has that very, very specific, hyper curated energy that. I don't think any other housewife really has to that extent. And I also think when we look back at her early seasons, like I will never forget Shannon Bedore's first season and the extent to which Heather just gaslighted and tormented that woman. I mean, it was so scary to watch, but it was also so fascinating because not only did she never really seem to truly understand what she was doing, it felt almost like the others also didn't really sort of understand or hold her accountable to it. So I find her really really fascinating and I think part of what makes her so fascinating to me from a financial aspect is, you know, from the very sort of like upscale hotel lobby, sky mall house, like to the fact that she has a wall of champagne but it's Veuve Clicquot. Like it's so lowbrow. It's so lowbrow. And yet only in Orange County could that be perceived as super classy. And even now they all refer to her as being so elegant and so mannered and so highbrow. And it's incredible to me because, you know, say what you will about the New York ladies, but they would laugh at a wall of Veuve in, behind your dining room table. But because of the specific type of wealth and the specific type of sort of cultural backdrop that Orange County gives it, she's able to sort of seem very aspirational and highbrow in a way I don't think she would anywhere else. And to me, that makes her even more compelling.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because people will sometimes say online, oh, Heather belongs in Beverly Hills. And I'm always just like, really? I don't, I don't think so. I think she belongs exactly where she is, which is basically I get to be a really big fish in a smaller pond. That said, I am curious about your thoughts about her specific to this season. Cause I think you'd mentioned you're sort of enjoying, at the very least, you said you're enjoying the season. Do you find her different the season than in past seasons?
1: I think that there's always, this has happened with many housewives. And it, to me, there's always something both kind of sad and nostalgic because you remember the glory days with that housewife, but also very interesting is when they come back and they clearly have a very, very self-managed idea of what the return is going to be like, what their character is going to be, what their role is going to be. And we've we've seen it with Nini, with Bethany, with all of these different housewives. And to see it happen with Heather, who as a rule already is so profoundly self-managed and so controlled... There's almost a Truman show aspect to me of it when you watch the scenes that she is so obviously curating to go a certain way. And Noella, who, I mean, (laughs) we could talk about Noella, but at the very least, Noella is very good at and unafraid to completely derail Heather's sort of intended story arc and her intended plot lines. And I find that really, really interesting. And even, for example, I really, I got a lot out of the scene where she was like at Nobu, which again, that's a very Heather place to be is like Nobu, Malibu. But she's there with her family and she has this scene where I'm pretty sure she like briefed all of the kids and Terry on what they were going to talk about before they were at this restaurant and they're all sitting there, you know, having like ordering their edamame and like having this very specific experience. And then two of the daughters start fighting. And you can tell that Heather's like, let's not do this on camera, like very much trying to manage the daughters back into the scene that she wanted to have. And I I find that kind of television again, in like kind of a Truman show way to be so interesting.
0: Like when the when the tracks derail. In a way that she can't control. Which, you know, I mean, I'm just sort of taking in everything you're saying, and I'm curious, Piper, sort of what's going on for you. But, you know, even just when you hearken back to season nine, which was Shannon's first season, which, by the way, that's like probably... One of my favorite seasons of The Housewives ever. It just got me thinking, especially because history is repeating itself now, where Shannon and Heather are once again butting heads. And it just starts getting me curious about what is it about the alchemy of those two? And what is it about Shannon that is so triggering for heather i don't really have an answer yet it's just sort of a question i'm holding for myself because yeah to your point a few years ago i mean she it was vicious i mean it was vicious and i don't know to this day that she's ever really taken responsibility for how low she went. I don't think she's let herself know the depth of her cruelty. And in fact, we're seeing that play out this season because it is true. The, the audacity of Heather to sort of complain about what was it like labels to Shannon. And I have to give Shannon credit. Shannon kind of went for the gentler blows. I mean, what I remember was Heather labeling her as an alcoholic. I remember Heather labeling her as needing psychiatric care. Like, do we need to order her an ambulance because she's having a psychotic breakdown? I mean, Heather really went for it in a way that like I said I don't think to this day she's ever taken responsibility for and then you can see it this season I mean even in the initial conflict where you know Be mad at Gina for bringing this up at the dinner. Be mad at this Nicole woman for harboring this secret about having sued Terry and never telling you about it. But the way that Heather's wrath and ire just went straight towards Shannon and in such an aggressive way, it really does sort of lead me to question and to wonder what is it about Shannon that's so deeply triggering for Heather?
2: Yeah, so you were kind of... Mentioning these pieces with the little scenes with Shannon, I always, I think what I always feel is some, a way that she's threatened, you know, it's a deep threat, and it's a, to what Chelsea said, it's a very specific image threat, and Shannon, you know, she runs in this circle, but tends to not be perfect, (laughs) tends to do things that I think for Heather, she looks very down upon and does not want to be associated with. And Shannon is sort of a You don't know what you're going to get. Once she starts drinking, she gets sloppy. And I think Heather has a real disdain for sloppiness. She really, really struggles with being associated, I think, you know, being next to something that is unmanageable and gets highly activated and triggered when she can't control it. And Shannon is not someone... (laughs) That likes to be controlled. So I think that's what I see is, you know, Heather's used to getting her way. She's used to people, you know, sucking up to her and, you know, wanting to be in her orbit. And she does really well with people like that, especially if she's on top. I, I kind of feel her as someone like, you know, the way she's kind of taken Gina under her wing. And then, uh, you know, watching the scenes with Jen and her husband, this, I mean, I was just like, I don't even know what to say. Like I was thinking to myself, Is she becoming like a couples counselor? Like, Is this her entree into, um, I'm going to start a new business and here it's going to play itself out in all the ways that I can help my fellow castmates in their relationships because there was something very orchestrated. I love the way you couch this, Chelsea. It's so spot on for me. Everything is orchestrated, calculated. And if there's any sort of threat to that, I think she wants to shut that shit down.
0: And by the way, I mean, you know, you're, you are right about that. They do have this new TV show where they're working with couples, Heather and Terry. They, I think they even mentioned it on the show. There's some new show, right? I think it's called like the seven year stitch. Is that what they're calling it?
1: Seven year stitch. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so yes, that is exactly what's happening. She's creating...
1: I w- Can I say, I wanted to just say one thing about the alcohol thing in particular, because I do think that the alcohol that you touched on, Piper, is one of the most distilled, no pun intended, expressions of this dynamic, right? Because... Heather curates so much of her personality and her personal brand around champagne, right? Like, it is not only like her little catchphrase, and she has the button, and she has the wall, and she has, you know, her little hidden bars everywhere. Like, she's also in almost every scene of the show drinking champagne, drinking some kind of alcohol, usually champagne. And does so in a way that I think in a vacuum, most people would be like, hey, she's drinking quite a bit. And Terry as well. And Terry, who seemed very sort of not okay with the fact that Ryan didn't want to drink. So there's, you know, clearly drinking is a big part of their lives in a lot of ways, but you'll never ever see Heather even remotely visibly tipsy on the show. You know, she's always carrying her glass of champagne, but never seeming even remotely out of control. And there's absolutely no way that that is not being very, very sort of like actively orchestrated by her. And I think to your point, the fact that Shannon does drink and does become visibly messy, I think part of the reason that it probably gets to Heather so much is because she drinks as well, but she's able to keep it in such a sort of tightly locked role in her life. And the fact that Shannon doesn't, I think, almost disgusts her. Yes.
0: And and this is really helping me to contextualize some stuff that was kind of coming through me before the episode. I was kind of just sort of feeling around before the episode. And uh, yeah, it's helping me because I keep going back, Chelsea, to kind of what you said about how the sort of ludicrousness of Heather positioning herself as this self-styled snob right who's all about champagne but then the champagne brands actually i mean i actually don't know anything about champagne but i'm taking your word for it that it's ultimately kind of a day class a brand and i was sort of sort of feeling into that as you guys were talking like what's that about like what's this about this woman who seems to have so much currency and mileage yes out of being like the know-it-all connoisseur who actually maybe doesn't really know much of anything and when i kind of felt into it well one It really sort of speaks to what you guys are saying, which is it's almost like if Heather actually allowed herself to perhaps be someone who truly knows about things, right? Who truly is like a real champagne expert, like as an example, it's almost like, yes, that then puts her in a bigger, more professional wiser world right but if she is instead this woman who like i said is sort of the big fish in the small pond who can play a part amongst people who maybe don't even know what she's talking about enough to challenge her Well, then that's a way that she gets to be the one who truly knows it all. And she gets to stay in control rather than having to risk sort of being in a bigger world where there are going to be people who maybe know more than her, you know, where she's not sort of in control of that situation. Now, the reason why this is so interesting to me is and this is something that I've thought about a lot over the years. One thing that I'm drawn to about Heather is the fact that she really did generate some real success for herself as an actress. And I think a lot of times this gets forgotten because it's been so long and she never quite hit it big. But this was a woman who came out to L.A. and had at least two, if not three, lead series roles on network primetime big three network tv shows now none of the none of the shows hit you know so she didn't become rich and famous like courtney cox or anything like that but still that's not a small thing i mean in terms of like achievement and accomplishment most actors never get anywhere near that so i've always been fascinated again kind of looking at pattern and you know kind of what it reveals about ourselves and our psyches i've always been fascinated by this notion of like heather got so close to something And then it didn't quite work out. And I've always had this kind of lingering sense that something in her really made a choice to turn her back on acting. Like I've always kind of had this curiosity if like those shows not working out really kind of like devastated something in her. And that to marry Terry and to go to Orange County, like it was a real choice of I'm turning my back on something because it hasn't worked out. So the point of what I'm getting to, though, is like I've always been really interested about her relationship to her creativity and her creative energy and her acting. And I actually dropped in a little bit to her relationship to acting before this. And part of what was coming through actually was, well, one, deep rage and a feeling of like you betrayed me in terms of it not working out. But then two... This sense of like, yeah, I'm kind of holding it at an arm's length, like acting, because if I fully let in acting, if I fully let this creative energy run through me in a big way, it means I'm going to be out of control. It means like the sense that I had from it was like, I'm going to have to know parts of myself that I don't really want to know. And I actually got the sense that she could be a really good actress If she were willing to really open up, but that because she has this relationship to control, she was like approaching acting. I mean, this is all my intuitive like guesswork, like approaching it from a place of control, approaching it from the sidelines. Let me try to like tiptoe around it so I can get the success and the the riches and the fame without having to risk being out of control and truly opening up to myself. And then when that didn't work out. That's where sort of I feel the rage and that's where I feel the decision of like, okay, I'm going in this direction. And now she's sort of in a world that she can control more, but I still feel like there's so much rage connected to where she's at because I think she absolutely feels better than it. Like I think she feels better than the show on a certain level. Like she needs the show at this point, but I think she feels better than the show. So anyways, I know I'm saying a lot all at once, but you guys talking about this notion of like control. And yeah, like needing to be in control of everything, it just really sort of brought me back to this possibility of like, I'm never going to let myself surrender to the full power and force of my acting, even though clearly it's a powerful force in me because I generated the success, but I'm going to lock it down because it's like too threatening to me on a certain level.
2: That's exactly what you just said in terms of the creativity, her relationship to her creativity. I think that she is such a manager. She's such a controller that she figured out my take. And I would be more interested to know about like the rage that you're talking about, because I feel it as a reckoning, like a pivot that says, I have to invest my creativity in my real skill set is in management you know i'm a manager i'm not going to let go i'm not going to let myself feel the parts of me that are like shannon bador i'm not going to let myself feel the parts of me that are less than the parts of me that are nasty and dirty i'm not going to let myself feel those things and when they get mirrored back to me when they somehow are somebody is calling me out for something i will vehemently defend that part, that's clearly a part of her. I mean, she's so cruel. Her cruelty is off the chain. But she would never describe herself. She would never allow herself to even remotely, like, get close to the impact that she has had on people. You know, like, I just really feel like she in the acting realm saw probably early on, I actually don't have what it takes to be an artist in in the way that maybe she wanted to be. And maybe it's off quickly because I, I see her being more of a manager than, a, than an artist. You know, her creativity is definitely filtered more in the realm of the structure of things, not the flow of things.
0: But do you sense that that's true of her essence. Cause like, I mean, I agree with you in terms of how she lives her life now, but my feeling is like, she becomes this great manager in the place where she doesn't want to open up to her essence.
2: Well, yeah, but I mean, so I never saw her, that her mom on this season when they had lunch with her mom, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I forget about like how she was, you know, the family, her mom was like tenfold her. So that's a good question. I don't think I've ever really, I I don't have a love of her. I'm more turned off by her. So I haven't really let myself, I think, invest too much interest in her essence because it feels super far away. But like, I think it came out like watching her with her children, even, even though it was orchestrated, even though there was, you know, some management around it, I really actually bought her support of her children, you know, in a way that maybe I hadn't before. I often feel people use their kids on this show to make them look a certain way. And I I could get a, a taste of that. But the way her kids respond to her, I feel like it's genuine, you know, with them and we got little snippets of it. So in terms of her essence having more of a, a wildness maybe or a free I mean I think there's pro- I mean her wildness comes out when it's taking somebody down. You know, she's like a predator almost. That's how the way I see her. It's just like stalking, you know, looking for the next kill. I almost can't feel her because she's so far away from it maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think she is a really good example of the dynamic that we were talking about at the top of this conversation about financial dynamics within marriages, even when women come into a marriage with their own money, with their own accomplishments, um, being very savvy. That the long-term, short-term decision-making, the sort of real money management and life planning and all of that sort of falls to the man and that, you know, a woman having too much power, too much money can be very toxic to a lot of heteronormative relationships. I think she really typifies that. And I think when you hear, for example, Terry, the throwaway comment he made to Ryan about how he couldn't imagine having a doctor as a wife, you know, just like on every level, so offensive to so many different people and says so much about the man that he is and about what he wants his partner to be and what his partner is allowed to be. And through the years, you really see her pursuits being treated as hobbies, as cute, as almost childlike. It's easy to understand why in a marriage where it seems like she's not able to have a whole lot of agency or really even be perceived as an equal or as an adult, why she gets so much mileage in really exerting that power dynamic with other women. And You know, obviously she does it in such a cruel, undermining way to someone like Shannon. But I mean, look at Gina. You know, she treats Gina like a pet. And she has this very clear dynamic where they're friends and they're able to spend time with each other only insofar as Gina is her fan, essentially. And. This is really revealing too much about myself, but I noticed that on the private jet going to New York, Gina had a graphic t-shirt that said, like, did did I just hear a cork pop or something like that? Historians of Heather Dubrow might know that is something Heather Dubrow said on a previous season. It was one of her little lines. So I don't know if Heather gave her that shirt or if Gina was just like really cranking it up, but it it was gross.
0: (laughs) It's from Heather's line. It's like a Heather shirt. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
1: Isn't that funny? Even but, worse.
0: I know both of you now both of you have instances where you're like it's almost like a Heather like a uh, spotlight of a product and like that's exactly what it is I oh mean which just, it, which just speaks to the level of like control that she's exerting this season
2: well does she have stock in um Vuv? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hope so for her sake and just to clarify Jamie I'm certainly no I'm not a year or anything but I you know I do have some knowledge of it my husband's family's actually in wine and not to say that vuv is bad or like inherently trashy or something it's just so basic it is just so the like you know what like almost like a teenage girl would think of as like a really classy champagne you know
0: oh no i love it i love yeah no i love it i love your knowledge (laughs) um no i totally get what you're i totally get what you're saying no i mean you guys are saying so much that like it just it's it So much for me. So I think just a couple things I want to say in terms of like Heather's creativity. So yes, I'm really glad you're bringing in her relationship to Terry Chelsea, because honestly, I have always had that sense again in the place where it always felt to me like. Heather really made a choice to turn her back on acting. Look, and this is a very reductionist, oversimplified way of saying this. Obviously they have a multi-dimensional relationship and obviously there are many threads there. And I'm sure, you know, she loves this man as, you know, her lifelong partner and the father of her children and all that. But I have kind of always felt this thread and flavor of like plan B, you know, Terry's plan B. And also it's just so interesting that no one does ever really talk about Heather marrying into money in the same way that they talk about it with Erica Jane in the same way that they talk about it. I mean, you know, with so many of these housewives and yet that's how I've always seen it. I mean, my suspicion, you know, I don't know if any of us have information about this. It feels to me like Terry actually comes from money or has generational wealth because I just don't see how they're affording all these things just based on like their income alone. But I mean, look, I don't know. But the point being, Whether it's through his own generation and investment or whether he came from money or a combination of both, Terry clearly has been the primary breadwinner. And I just think it's so interesting that, yes, Heather married into this and I think it sort of gave her and afforded her a certain lifestyle where she could be in control and yet it doesn't ever really get talked about in those terms and i think part of what comes up for me like the piper in terms of talking about her creativity i i dropped a little bit into heather and her relationship to her her house for example you know that she takes such pride in and what really came through was like this is like yeah this is my domain like this is where i'm in charge kind of like what you were saying chelsea like terry you know he's the one who sort of earns things he's the doctor oh you and your interests but for heather it's like this is you know terry's away at work i'm in charge of the house i get to do all this i get to design it and it really is this feeling of like this is mine and no one can take it away from me and the way that i experience it is yet yeah, this is where my creative energy gets to flow and again no one can take this away from me and Kind of on that note too, I did a little digging, just I started <laughs> I dropped into Heather and just sort of saw myself looking at like I did a visual of their marriage license where it just says like, Dr. and Mrs. Terry DeBro. And I did feel this flavor of feels mean to say. Again, you guys, this is just playful exploration. Who knows if any of this is true? But I felt a kind of a flavor of disappointment. Again, plan B, but also this sense of it's not fair that he gets to. Do it all. It's not fair. He gets to earn it all, like specifically around the money, like this part of her that really felt like I wanted to go out there and earn it all and be able to do with it what I wanted. And what was interesting to me kind of when I follow that threat, cause I also dropped into her around money too. I guess I'll just say all of it all at once. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but you know, the interesting thing about when I dropped into Heather in relationship to money, it was very similar to what I felt. When I dropped into her around acting and what surprised me was actually what I experienced was her. You guys can't see me at home, but my, my arm is extended and my hands out kind of like keeping money at an arm's distance. And I was like, wait, that's so interesting. Like I wouldn't have expected that because Heather, you know, again, she sort of defines herself as a relationship to affluence and money, but it was this feeling of like, I'm scared to let this energy of money run all the way through me in a direct empowered way because if I do like again it's like I'm no longer in control somehow so it's very much what I was saying about like why she would prefer to be the one who's the expert about the basic champagne rather than actually being like the seasoned you know you know sort of devotee of like really good champagne it's like if money's at an arm's length and I'm coming at it sideways And I'm marrying into it and I'm not generating it all my own through like my acting and my creativity. There's a way in which everything still kind of stays under control and I get to keep certain parts of myself under wraps that I don't want to know about. So I don't know. I just thought this was sort of all really interesting in context of like what you guys are bringing in.
2: You know, when you were talking and it's so interesting, like even the word creative. (laughs) Next to her, it's like, I I think that's where I get lost because when you were talking about her home, for instance, like I don't feel an ounce of creativity in that home. I feel it's sterile. I feel it's perfect. I feel it's, I mean, to me, it looks like a hotel. It feels to me, I think you even said something about a lobby or I don't know, like it's a very curated, tight, like I mean, and mind you, it's just not my aesthetic also. So, you know, that might just be a judgment of mine. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I'm a little messier and, you know, like I like things that have life in them. And like, I mean, even her, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a emptiness. And so we're humans, we possess creativity, but I feel her channel for it is to create structure. It's to create boxes that people are supposed to fit inside. And if they don't, oh my God, the creativity of punishment is going to come through. Like, you know, it's just like it gets funneled into something that doesn't feel good to me.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, can I just make a clarification? I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm not saying that she embodies the creative energy that's there. But what I would say, and I think you, would agree with this you can feel her passion for what she is creating in the process of creating like with her home for example like she takes you through the tour The i you know i remember her on one season talking about like the, the hexagonal ice cubes you know the the button for the champagne the drawer that warms the towels i mean I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for you. I think you can feel her. There's passion there. I mean, so that's sort of what I mean when I talk about her creative energy. Now, to your point, I agree with you though. I think, and I, and I do have a bit of a bombshell I want to drop in all of this, but I think that yes, to your point, I think she's absolutely terrified of the creative energy that would want to come through if she let it. That's why I'm saying it's like, I don't think she ever wanted to let herself fully succeed at acting in a big way because she might have to open up in a way that she doesn't want to. And, I, I don't know. It's it's like the difference between a, a high school theater nerd who like has the big smile on her face and sort of hits all the right beats versus like the Meryl Streep or like the Michelle Pfeiffer or the Jessica Lang who like puts her heart and soul on the line. I think her creativity is specifically getting channeled into, like you're saying, the management of structures that actually keep her creative fire suppressed, if that makes sense. But to me, that's still in a way an expression of her creativity it's just like a little bit of an mc escher mind fuck
2: i feel like it creates her mask that the passion is clearly there but i don't like when you were talking about essence when you're i just when you were talking about that last piece right there it's like oh that's what it is it's like it's her mask it's lifeless. Every ounce of her passion and her direction and her, you know, flow goes into creating this image. And if it's an image that you look up to fantastic, you know, but like what's behind it? And I think what gets stressed is when the women, people like Noella, so for instance Noella, right? We could bring her in here. Here is a woman who also is very very attached to image clearly. But she has a little bit she's a little looser you know there's still something very tight about noella but it's almost like she's like the unsuccessful rigid you know she can't keep it together she can't contain it she just she can't do it and i think that's one of the reasons when i look at why noella and heather trigger each other so much it's like noella's kind of the unsuccessful heather when it comes to keeping her shit together and and you know maybe noella is very free in other areas where she's let herself be sexual, let herself be a little freer. And I, I mean, like, I was just imagining, like, what do you think Heather is like in the bedroom?
1: Piper, I was literally, oh, my God. <laughs> I, well, so first I just wanted to quickly say that I actually agree with Jamie and that I think she is a deeply creative person and what she's constantly creating is this image, which I agree with you is deeply unaspirational, but like, I think she would do an incredible job, like actually working for like an airline or working for like a chain of upscale business hotels. Like she would, I mean, her ability to create that specific type of uh, experience and spaces, I find that unbelievable. But this entire time I was thinking to myself, like, I always think like, what is Terry and Heather's sex life like if it exists? But I don't know if that's too rude to say on this podcast, but I think about that all the time. And I have gone back and forth over the years in my mind and have come to the, you know, the conclusion that I just don't think they have a sex life. I just don't think they do. I don't know, like Terry scans to me as, and you alluded to this earlier, Jamie, and I feel as triggered by Terry as you probably do. There's something about him that reads as just, I mean, very, very, as much as she feels removed from her own humanity, he's like 10 steps further away. Like, I don't even know who that man is. But I definitely get a sense that it tells me a lot that it's so important for her to maintain such A perfect image around every aspect of her life as a wife and mother. But anytime the conversation is even remotely sexual throughout the past however many seasons, she is so okay with being a a huge prude and being so uncomfortable with even talking about it. And even in the most sort of like, you know, PG married couple, you know, older, whatever might be, whatever the sort of acceptable way for that would be even that she's not comfortable with. And I think it says a lot that in this effort to maintain and project an image of perfection in all these other areas, even that is not enough to make her sort of try to portray herself as having a a healthy and satisfying sex life with her husband.
0: It's just so funny, you guys, I literally, just like yesterday or the day before, I have like an Instagram friend and we chat a lot. And I literally said to him, I was like, how often do you picture Terry and Heather having sex? <laughs> and he was like, I don't. And I was like, and then I started going into it. I was like, well, what positions do you think they do? Like, it, it just, it was so fascinating to me, the the notion of their sex life. So it's amazing to me that this is coming in now. There's so much I want to say. And this kind of dovetails into the bombshell that I wanted to drop That's sort of connected to like my experience of essence and creativity. But I mean, I think first and foremost, just to speak to both your points, like, Like I said, I just always get the sense with Heather that there was more of a compromise in marrying Terry than people tend to, like, give it credit for or acknowledge. And so, yeah, I do really wonder about her relationship, to Is she attracted to this man? Is sex with him empowering? Is it embodied? Does she feel like she's sold something out? You know, does she at times, you know, feel like, yeah, I really, I mean, again, I don't think consciously she would let herself know this, but like unconsciously or semi-consciously, like I really kind of compromise myself in a really deep way for the sake of this marriage now. Maybe this is my Jamie's bias because I just find Terry so distasteful that I can't imagine someone being attracted to him. But yeah, those questions have really come through because, you know, to go back to Shannon, for example, obviously her marriage to David was a disaster. And I know, like, by the end, they weren't really having sex or anything. But I still felt like even in the midst of all of their insanity, you could kind of feel and sense where they once, you know, had a vibe. And, you know, David was an attractive guy, you know, and you can feel like heat and chemistry in Shannon, like I think in David, even when they weren't, you know, getting along. And so what I want to say about all this, though, is part of what came through when I was kind of feeling around into Heather was actually, and this is what really shocked me, although it kind of also makes sense to me as I sit with it, is when I think about Heather in essence and like creativity and who this woman might actually be, I started feeling like this relationship to like what I would call the dark feminine like dark feminine power dark feminine sexuality and when i say dark i don't mean that in a negative critical way like i mean it almost feels like witchy to me like uh, like dark feminine spirituality like the feminine divine and it was just so interesting cuz i've never kind of experienced her that way before and i also want to say like to your point piper i've said from the beginning like years back when i first appeared on bitset and started doing this like my experience of heather is that she's deeply split from herself like that there is you know if, if heather's conscious mind is up here in her head like the truth of who she is and her connection to her feelings and her impulses is like way down in the in the soles of her feet and there's like a big concrete block but yeah just kind of really feeling this place where she has this relationship to sort of powerful dark feminine sexual creative energy in rage That's just been so hugely disowned. And part of like the flavor that I felt when I was sort of feeling into her relationship to acting was almost like the voice that comes in. And obviously, we met her mother that kind of says, Heather, well, this was what was so interesting. It was kind of like the voice that I really heard was like, Heather, you can't make money that way. You can't be successful that way. So what was interesting to me, one, was kind of like feeling like, Oh, has Heather been living with an image all her life that there is a certain amount of money she's supposed to have? There's a certain amount of money she's supposed to be making that maybe isn't even true for her spirit or her soul. But it's like an image that came in or she was like taught or that she learned. And then two, having the overlay of that image of like wealth means something. I'm also as an aside, I'm kind of curious. Because she's Jewish, right? So part of me was like, I wonder if there was any kind of persecution in the past or anything related to the Holocaust. Because I know that can really work its way into the lineage in terms of like financial fear and families and kind of feeling like you got to go out and earn money in order to like be safe, you know. But that aside, getting this message of I can't go out and earn it the way that I really want to earn it, which is through like my creativity, my wildness, my acting And so then kind of like disowning all this powerful energy, but trying to get at that thing anyway that I think I'm supposed to have, but then kind of doing it sideways. And then the rage of like it not manifesting the way I want it to manifest. So then I have to like compromise in this sort of creepy marriage and sort of settle for the reality show. Like I just sort of feel this feeling as I was exploring it. I'm feeling it now is like there's this powerful dark witchy woman in her banging at the walls being like let me the fuck out i'm so much better than this stupid reality show real housewives of orange county what the f is this like we should be doing dark powerful interesting theater that like rocks people's souls so i don't know i mean this is the voice that i hear maybe this is just complete insanity but this is what's been coming through
2: well, it's interesting because the, the thing that she's imprisoned by is that the image, she, she's the one that has to unlock herself here. She's the one that would have to, you know how I, I can usually feel like a system has kept somebody there or you're bringing in lineage or family. I think that she has seen that she has enough power that if she feels trapped by anything unconsciously, it's the thing that she followed, you know, and maybe she doesn't know how to um, see it that way or feel it that way. And so she just feels maybe the rage. Maybe that's what you're talking about. You feel the rage of being trapped by something. But for some reason, I just I'm off to the side of it just a little bit. It might just be my lack of being able to understand her completely. Like, I, I don't feel behind her image is so strong. It's really hard for me to get behind it.
1: One thing that I've always found really interesting about Heather in relation to the backdrop of OC specifically, I think the consensus is obviously we don't have like the full details, but it seems like the general consensus is Heather wanted Kelly to never be on the show, wanted her off the show during the one season they shared threatened to leave, threatened producers, like it was a whole thing. And then it seems pretty clear that a big stipulation for Heather returning, especially in this very sort of marquee capacity, was that Kelly had to be gone. You know, and I think that that level of expression um, of willpower over the production of the show is fairly unheard of for most cities. Like you hear in most cities, those kinds of demands being made. But I think with this Heather Kelly thing, that is the most clear evidence we have of it really happening and and not only happening, but being so obviously rewarded with how the show framed her and her comeback. But what I find really interesting about that specifically as it pertains to OC is that OC for me has always been by far the darkest franchise, by far the one that most, I mean, if all of them are different microcosms of America, OC is Trump's America in so many different ways. I mean, the stuff that goes on with the children of the OC housewives is unbelievable. And I mean some of it is like off camera, but we're talking guns, we're talking attempted murder, we're talking about, you know, people dying, we're talking about really, really domestic abuse, really, really scary stuff, or even, you know, what you do see on camera with, you know, how Brianna's husband exploded or the whole saga with Tamra's son. So, you have, and you know, many of them are very open Trump supporters. Many of them engage in all kinds of uh, let's just say, not very politically correct behavior on and off the show, and including much, much worse than things Kelly Dodd has done. And I don't like Kelly. I've never been a fan of her. I think Jamie, you once said that she just seemed like one of those housewives who's just like not well enough to be on television, and I agreed with that from the beginning. Uh, I almost don't get mad at her because it just seems so chaotic and un unmanageable for her, her even you know, the things she says and does. But, It always really fascinated me that Heather took such particular issue with Kelly out of this entire sort of tapestry that is Orange County and why she was so singled out in particular. And I do think probably a lot of that speaks to the extent to which Heather felt and feels that Kelly presents a risk to the franchise financially, reputationally beyond the others. It does to me, in some ways, indicate a lack of any kind of consistent value on her part. Like that, the whole thing with Kelly, as opposed to all of the other OC and all that we have going on, the fact that she singled out Kelly to that degree indicates to me that as much as she would say like, oh, we're better than this show. We have principles, this, that, and the other. Uh, no, she clearly doesn't. Even if she tells herself or tells the audience, you know, that Kelly represented a bridge too far, clearly Kelly didn't. It's rampant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, unfortunately, uh, as as bad as Kelly is, she is not by far the
2: worst that OC has produced. No. And I think uh, uh, it's a very particular voice in this area. If she brought, I think Kelly Dodd actually brought some reality. Her and um, what was the other one that was on that show? Um with the husband, Slade, Gretchen. That is, so that's a little, like they're in my neighborhoods, you know, That that's, that's a little closer. To my, they're not up on the hill. They're down here lurking.
0: And that's why Orange County has been my favorite franchise because it is so dark and I don't think it's ever gotten enough Credit for how dark it is. I mean, I'm coming from a background, you know, I grew up reading detective novels and crime fiction. So for me to have this Southern California community where, you know, I don't know if people remember this, but like way, way back, Tammy Knickerbocker and her husband Lou, who died between seasons and he had promised the two daughters, like, you don't ever have to work. I'm going to set you up for life. When I die, you're going to be rich. And then I guess he married like a mail order bride who he brought to america and apparently he had a heart attack and the rumor was that the mail order bride let him die because he actually left everything to her in the will and then like the daughters were left with nothing and then we watched tammy and the daughters like you know in the midst of financial struggle and i, I mean i'm just watching this being like i can't even believe this is on my tv this feels so like california neo-noir Now, I mean, my heart goes out to these people. I don't mean to make light of their pain, but for me, it's like the darkness on this franchise is just so compelling. And yeah, I do think it's sort of offering us a piece of America that we don't really tend to see on TV. And for me, as someone who likes to see everything like you know i love this is why i like watching international cinema i like to see other worlds and i think so many people would always be like well you know i don't want to live in orange county or you know it's religious conservatism and i'm not into that and i'm like no that's actually why i want to watch it (laughs) i want to see these people i'm not exposed to this in my everyday life and i find it so compelling i remember the fourth season of oc which was gretchen's first season that was the season that got me into Housewives. And I remember watching that finale. And it was kind of the first finale where they brought everyone from the first four seasons back. Like, Joe was there. Slade was there. Lori was there. Quinn was there, if you remember Quinn. And I remember just watching it feeling like this, to me, feels like as culturally significant as The Sopranos. Like, I feel like I'm watching something that's just so relevant and important and dramatically rich. And it was truly the moment where I was like, wow, this show it has a lot going on.
1: You say Jamie that we don't see people like this on television a lot and I want to so I have to be I have to use some unfortunate socioeconomic terms but I I do think that they're really important to this particular franchise because I'm always very drawn to the particular socioeconomic dynamics and the expressions of wealth because each expression of wealth on each franchise and in culture is just so different. I agree that we don't see people like this on TV but I actually think it's that we do see a lot of people like this on TV, but never with a lot of money. Like you don't usually see people like Tamara and her son or Brianna and Ryan on television with a lot of money because they scan, and again, to use an unfortunate term, but like they scan as white trash. They are what we read as white trash in our culture. You know, if you go on their social media pages, if you look at what they're doing, what they're saying, their level of sort of cultural awareness of education, of class, as you know, Heather would say, like it is very lowbrow in a sense. And very much, again, it's very MAGA. It's very guns and God and family and all of these things that we've always almost associate with lower socioeconomic classes. But I think what's really interesting about it is that people tend to think of, for example, Trump voters as being impoverished when on aggregate, they're actually in many cases, upwardly mobile. You know, These people do have money on aggregate and this is what it looks like, but we very rarely display financial aspiration with this particular cultural and social sort of backdrop to it. And that is why, again, I mean, it is not to me insignificant that Heather, on top of being the classy one, on top of being sort of you know, setting herself apart is also a Jewish woman in this, what is heavily an evangelical Christian right-wing community, which, you know, in many ways is aligning with all kinds of things that aren't, uh, you know, particularly friendly to the Jewish community. So I do think on every level, Heather's role within this particular type of wealth is unbelievably fascinating because for as much as she talks about being, you know, her obsessions with class in a very superficial way, she is far and away associating herself with a television show whose sort of fundamental positioning is Trashy, even in ways that other franchises of The Housewives aren't.
0: And I think you know what's been interesting to me, like when we were having this sort of broader conversation about sort of Orange County and the Orange County milieu, I just couldn't help but also be thinking about the fact that the heart of the show for so many years was Vicky and Tamra, and just their spokes on the wheel. I mean, in Vicky's case, you know, a single mother who leaves a bad relationship and then is driven to make her own money, creates a successful business, is really kind of like, I mean, lover or hate her, she's a powerhouse woman. Like she's powerful, right? And really kind of generates a lot for herself. And then, you know, as I've spoken about, Tamara has that in her too. You know, there's a way like I really think of Tamara as a survivor. She was a teenager when she had Ryan you know, then ended up in this marriage to Simon, then sort of used the show to really leverage her way out of that relationship. Now is in a happy, fulfilling marriage, has multiple businesses. You know, she's very successful. And so I don't know. What I'm saying about this other than the contrast is so interesting to me of like, one, even just looking at Heather, if we think of her as kind of like she married into Terry's wealth and she did it so seamlessly and does it with such a self-possession that no one even ever really talks about it in those terms. Or then you have like a Gretchen, for example, right, who you know, when she came on was sort of going to marry Jeff. I'm just sort of interested in these contrasts of like, you know, to what you're speaking about, you know, you're sort of bringing in maybe what some might call like a lower level of like social consciousness or, you know, values, how people like sell themselves out for money, what Orange County tends to value as a culture. But then also at the heart of it, like in the case of Vicky and Tamara, two kind of scrappy, powerful woman who really in a way made something of themselves i'm just i don't know i'm just aware of that because the the texture of vicky and Tamara feel very different to me than the other franchises there's a way in which they've survived and generated for themselves that feels very different to me than the other franchises
2: what i'm hearing you name or sort of talk about is it feels like the culture of this area. There's a lot of working class, you know, in this in this area. And a lot of people then have I mean, look, LA of people that couldn't buy in LA, they came to Orange County, you know. So I think it's kind of like the the little sister, little brother, you know. I don't know, it just feels like in a way if you talk about class Orange County, at least that's been my experience growing up. We were always we were behind the orange curtain. We are we don't have culture. We don't have class. You know, these were the type of things that I heard growing up because LA was the place to be as soon as we were teenagers, you know, and able to to go to bars or, you know, have a fake ID. It's like we didn't hang out here. We went to LA. This was like white trash central, as you've named, you know, like, especially the areas that were inland from the beach. So I think a lot of people that maybe were inland, in the inland empire, kind of once they made enough money, made it out, kind of pushed out to the coastal area. And I think that's kind of you're just naming a little bit of the culture that is around us. I mean, when I have kids and growing up, but having them in school, it was like there were schools that you didn't want your kids to go to and people lie about their addresses so that they go to other schools. So there's this constant influx of different classes sort of trying to blend in. And I think you're talking about where maybe it reveals itself a little bit more. And then maybe people like Heather, who are very specifically wanting to identify with a particular class and all that it encompasses, there's a a bit of a threat when the reality kind of shows up and says, "Eh, you're not all that. This This is here. This is right alongside you. She doesn't want to associate with it. And I think that's true of a lot of people in this area. And at the same time, their kids are addicted to heroin and you know doing things that are maybe sketchy in a lot of ways and they have the money to hide it
1: Piper can I ask a very like sort of insider OC question about Shannon in particular Shannon I recall I think was born and raised in Orange County grew up in Orange County and has lived there her whole life uh, and grew up riding horses and you know living the kind of lifestyle you were describing I think pre sort of development in a lot of the area. Does she, to you represent a very prototypical Orange County woman of that class? Yes. interesting. What is like what would you say is like the defining feature of that type of wealthy Southern California woman as opposed to like a woman in, in LA?
2: A climber. You know, somebody that is clawing to get to the next tier in whatever way they can, and appearing to have education, whatever it is that makes you a good citizen they will do anything. I mean, look at these are the people that are buying off, you know, like the the school thing that happened with the colleges and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. That's this community right here. There was a person at our school that um, my kids high school that You know, their father was one of the people involved in all of that. Coaches, like it's just a, it's a climbing. It's a weird, because I'm so middle-class, it's hard for me. I I have a bias, I'm sure, you know, related to my upbringing. It's like, I'm better than you. I have to make sure that I'm better than you is the feeling. And if I'm not, how dare you? How dare you think you're better than me? That's all I could say. (laughs) I hope that answered. (laughs)
0: As you were speaking, you know, to this experience of this kind of prototypical Orange County resident, like, I just heard these questions that I wanted to ask of her or him or them. You know, what is it that you want? You know, what is it that you need? Like, what do you really want? What do you really need? Like, what's underneath the impulse to climb? I'm just aware, like, the blanket topic of this whole episode is around money, you know, and what money means to people. And yeah, I guess I'm just so fascinated, like, for example, with these characters that we're talking about on this show on the Real Housewives of Orange County, it's like, what is underneath that driving need for more to climb upward? And, you know, if we were able to kind of peel back the drive for more money for money's sake, or even like Terry's consumerism, you know, what's there? What are the human impulses? What wants to be heard? What wants to be seen? What do you want? What do you need?
1: I think there's so much of, especially as it pertains to the different expressions of wealth within these different franchises, I think there's such a sort of narcissism of small differences. And especially, I think part of the reason that Shannon historically has always been so upsetting to Heather is because she's the only one in Heather's tax bracket. You know, very famously on her first season, Heather's house was very comparable to Shannon's and Heather kept making the distinction that although they were in the same subdivision, they like weren't in the same cul-de-sac or something. Like she had to keep sort of separating it, even though socioeconomically they were very, very clearly on par. And even a lot of the wives were making initial comments about how Shannon's house was actually even nicer than Heather's at the time. And I think that is probably a huge part of what drives Heather's need to, you know, make such a a distinction between the two of them. But also, you know, as it pertains to this very slightly different type of wealth, I think something and this is, you know, maybe getting a little into the weeds on the political side of it. But I think Heather in many ways typifies a very, very specific, ultra rich, sort of nominally liberal person, right? Like she has, you know, LGBT children that she's very, you know, active about supporting and she makes open references to voting for democratic political candidates and very much sort of wants to separate herself from the very Trumpified evangelical, you know, OC that is still, you know, the show that she's choosing to be on year after year. So I don't really know um, how separate she really is. But this very sort of naive belief that those sort of liberal attributes make her very fundamentally different from the other women around her. I'm sure when it comes to things like zoning laws, when it comes to things like healthcare, when it comes to things that are really structural about politics, I'm pretty sure they're they have the same interests, they're voting in the same way, they think of people in the same way. Like I don't think Heather is any more motivated to meaningfully address, you know, the homelessness crisis in California than a Trump voter down the street of her, from her might be, but I think Someone like Heather, I think, represents a very specific type of wealthy liberal who really wants to drill down on the very superficial differences between herself and someone just like her who might have voted for Trump. And I think that's, to me, why it's even more fascinating that she continues to put herself on this particular show surrounded by the type of rich people that she clearly
2: doesn't want to be associated with. Well, I would say white. Yeah. This is a This is a very white county. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of brown bodies also, but this is a very white county. And I would say in answer to your question, Jamie, like what, what is it that they're after? It's, I want things to stay the same or make room for me to get better within what's here, but I don't want too much movement. I don't want things to get, you know, get too chaotic. I don't I don't want to potentially lose the strides that I've made so far that I worked so hard to get to. You know, there's this attitude here of I live here because I earned it. And, you know, this was not handed to me. And any laws that are going to jeopardize my tax you know, property taxes, anything that's going to give to any sort of social services, anything like that. It's like, no, that's not gonna happen here. But we we are not looking. I mean, and I don't want to say we like I'm including myself in this we, but this is a I feel this if I don't know for a fact, but it feels very fifty-fifty to me. It's a it's a pretty tight race when it comes to voting on a lot of policies here. But things tend to stay the same there's not a lot of change that happens here environmentally or any structurally
0: i mean it makes me think of ryan tamra's ryan the rage that we've seen consume him it's strange though like from from the distance of tv i always feel a lot of compassion for him you know i just i see (laughs) chelsea grimace's
1: Have you dug into what that man has been doing off of television? It is so scary. It is so scary.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. I I think just when I take in this kid who was, like, born to a single teenage mom, and then, you know, I think carted off to grandparents, you know, when she married Simon and got displaced and was kind of like, you know, I think there's this sense of the other son, you know, who came in before and then she created the proper family with Simon. It's just, you know, it's like, and then just even that dynamic of like, it was just him and Tamara for all those years. And then suddenly he's bounced out, you know, Simon comes in, and then they're the new kids. I just can feel the energy of like feeling like the unwanted outsider, you know, and I can imagine that must have been very painful for him. And I can imagine it probably wasn't really being spoken to, you know, and then Simon comes in with his chest puffed out. But yeah, I mean, to your point, Piper, I mean, he's someone who I I feel there is such an anger there that I can see it really lending itself to an entitlement that says like, I I want what's mine. I want what I want. And uh, kind of like no one's out there sort of really looking out for me. So like, let me take what I can grab. I'm owed this, essentially. I don't think his personal experience, the values connected to concern for the common good were necessarily modeled in his family systems, in his personal upbringing, right? In a way that he could feel or take in or internalize.
2: Well, and the question is, what is common? You know, what is the collective good and what does that actually include? And I think behind this curtain, it's like our collective is a very small collective and it doesn't actually include the full picture. And I think that is a sad statement about this area. I think it's potentially starting to change, but I'd be interested. Like, you know, this is where I think the platforms like these housewife franchises, you know, have the... I don't know. I just always wonder what would happen if there was a little more thought associated to why are you doing the show? And if you were to affect some sort of change, if you were to use this potential platform for something other than your own self-promotion, I would love to see what would happen. I mean, I guess that's just not what these are about. But I mean, like I remember when New York came around, there was a lot of Fundraising things that they were doing, you know, like a lot of the parties were revolving around these little events that they were doing that made people maybe think a little more. And I don't see that happening in Orange County.
0: Well, maybe the last thing I just kind of touch on that's sort of on my mind in terms, you know, I'm always kind of fascinated by Shannon's relationship to money, both in terms of just, I mean, you know, there's been noise made on the show about how she's renting this like $20,000 a month house in Newport beach. And I know it seems like she kind of let herself get screwed over in the divorce from David. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious on your take on that. Chelsea, like I, with a lot of these housewives, I really wonder how they support themselves in the way that they do, because I'm still just like, how does this all add up? Just even, even knowing like their income from the show, I'm like, does it really support all of this? But is Shannon kind of a perfect model of like the combination of one perhaps not being raised in a system that really supported her to know a lot about money and to make empowered decisions about money. And then two, also kind of being in this Orange County world where You know, I mean, again, there was a whole conflict last season about her judging Gina's house as small and sad. And so Shannon's someone who just can't let herself not have like the prime piece of real estate in Newport Beach, even if it means she's like bleeding shitloads of money every month. Like, what do you sort of think about Shannon's relationship to money?
1: Shannon has always read to me like like a 17th century Dauphine or something like true like old royalty money. She comes from a lot of generational wealth. She was raised in huge privilege. She married into huge privilege. Her constant ongoing health stuff, her body stuff, her, you know, always trying to sort of, you know, find a an alternative way to, you know, putting crystals in her teeth and having her lemons and everything is so this very specific expression of it's not always women, but often women who have just absolutely never once in their lives been connected to material financial reality. Like just, I mean, the way royalty was back in a, in a different time. And I genuinely think when she goes into a place like um, Gina's house, it's like a, impossible to fathom that people live like this because she's so removed from any social or cultural context in which people do live like that. And have you seen the favorite She reminds me of Queen Anne in The Favorite with, you know, always on screen looking and, you know, just like coming on television, you know, with a face full of like needles fresh out of a, you know, some horrible procedure looking the way I'm sure no one would normally be okay going on national television looking like. But I think that is a very specific type of wealth. And you do encounter it a lot, I think, East Coast as well. People who have just been so rich for so long, they just truly don't give a shit about a lot of stuff the way other people do. Um, and I think that Her ability to expose herself in such an unflattering way, interestingly to me, speaks to an older money than someone like a Heather, who I think is, you know, I think her parents do fine for themselves. But I think clearly, she ascended to a different social class in marrying Terry. And I think... You know, not to drill down on it, but she has to like write a printed menu that includes an amuse-bouche, which I'm sorry, would never be on a menu. You don't put that on a menu. So like, it's that insane striving for a higher social class and, an, and you know, putting on airs of wealth. That someone like Shannon, who has been so rich and so insulated her whole life, just couldn't give two shits about. So I do find her wealth fascinating in a very different way.
0: So do you think that Shannon's just fine? Like that that regardless of the settlement with David and whatnot, like there's enough generational wealth there that she's, Shannon's going to be fine for the rest of her life?
1: Oh, for sure. But also people talk about Sonia a lot going into like, um, what is it, the little and big Edie, the, you know, Grey Gardens I think Shannon's more of a Grey Gardens figure, if anything, because she's clearly got enough money to let her coast in some Newport Beach house until whenever. And she definitely seems like she's, um, you know, got a few vices. And I think she's so insulated from the consequences of really any of her choices that I certainly don't lose any sleep over her.
0: Okay, I have one other question for you. Actually, I find this so fascinating. and I know you don't have any insider information, but for you... Her company, for example, Real for Real, where she's making these lemon tinctures, any of these housewives ventures, that's not like Bethany Frankel. Is this thing making money? And how much money is it making? Like, I'm just so fascinated by this. Is this making money?
1: Historically, no. And when they have made money, we actually are doing um, a series. Uh, one part of which is going to be on some of these, um, not just Housewife, but these celebrity dropship brands, where they're just putting their name on things, which is very, very common. Like Sonia Morgan's clothing line, things like that. Uh, there's also a lot of them that are basically MLMs. But for the most part almost categorically no, they don't really make money. And when they do, it's usually in licensing deals and things like that. But I do think for most of them, it's a cost benefit analysis of the fact that this will provide them a storyline on the show if they don't otherwise have one. Because with Shannon, I mean, outside of that business, she's ostensibly running like what exactly is happening in Shannon's life. Like we can only see her like get laser treatment so many times. Like there's just not that much happening. Um, so I do think that they probably like, I would even be interested to see how they file a a lot of this stuff on their tax returns, because I bet a lot of it is being charged essentially as costs for the show for which they're usually independent contractors. So I definitely think, you know, Bethany alludes to it a lot. And I think they don't let her talk about it too much because it's too inside baseball and breaking the fourth wall. But she alludes a lot to the fact that these businesses aren't real and the fact that the wives are using them as as reasons to stay on the show. And that really upsets her as someone who actually did create a line, which is now sort of dubious in terms of its actual sort of merits as a brand. But she's right that I think even in terms of the tax implications, they're probably just charging it as operating costs for the show the way they would, you know, make up.
0: Yeah, because it was kind of amazing. I think Sonya is the only one who actually (laughs) brought her numbers out on camera.
1: And they were like in the negative.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was in the red. You know, but I mean, that's the stuff that I'm fascinated. I would love to know the numbers of these businesses and yeah, how much they cost to run, what they're making. And I guess to your point for Shannon, like, is this even a real enterprise that she's, cause again, I mean, I will say, Tamara actually creates viable businesses. She seems to have like a really successful CBD company at this point. Her gym's still up and running. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Like how many of these businesses do they even have a serious intention of breathing life into as something that's a means of supporting them beyond the show?
1: Very difficult to say. But I would also say it's we shouldn't underestimate the amount of Grifters that these women have hanging around them, who are telling them about this business that they should do. And I mean, like, look at Sonia's team. Every time you saw them, they were like, "You were like, Sonia, get away from these people." <laughs> I mean, that being said, Jamie, I have to, and I know we're wrapping here, but I must sneak in a congratulations to you for being the only person that I've heard outside of they did a thing on the Bravo docket to truly call out the extent to which Sonia Morgan was like a malevolent actor in her lawsuit and completely screwed that production company over in such a malicious. way everyone's always like sonia is so adorable and i was like thank you jamie i felt so gaslit by the sonia discourse
0: (laughs) oh no it drives me crazy i mean she her behavior on season five i mean the fact that i can even enumerate the different seasons is a little (laughs) concerning to me but that season when heather thompson was trying to help her with her brand and giving her this free business advice in the level of entitlement that Sonia just exhibited through that like because I mean these are matters that are near and dear to my heart and this is actually the one place where I actually really connect with Bethany because Bethany typically I'm not like a huge Bethany fan but like I appreciate how seriously Bethany takes matters of business. And I under, I was one of the only people who was on Bethany's side when Sonia did the cheater brand and launched her own like tipsy girl or whatever it was called. Everyone else was like, Oh, Bethany's being so cruel. I was like, no, you tell her, you tell her because there's something I think when you, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, yes, I do intuitive work, but it's facilitated through a business and business is something I'm really passionate about. And kind of going back to Heather, it is a vehicle for creative energy. Anyone who has a bit, I mean, you know, you're the same way Chelsea with the financial diet and Piper, like you have a business, you know, in your practice, it's like our creative energy runs through these things and they are so, I think for a lot of us, they are so deeply personal and our heart is in it. So I think sometimes, yes, to see some of these people on TV, just sort of go through the motions, not really have expertise to your point, like deferring to other people with no real kind of like personal investment in what they're creating. And then kind of the level of entitlement that's sort of there as well. To me, it's it gets personally triggering because it's like you don't actually have a vision. You don't care about what you're putting out there. And there is something so kind of like with Terry. There's just something so mechanical and gross about this. Like, you just want me to buy your product because you just want to earn some money. There's nothing of the heart and the soul in this. There's no energetic transmission <laughs> happening here. You just want me to buy your freaking... Sweatshirt with a slogan on it. So you can have a couple extra dollars in your back pocket. Kind of got away from your, uh, your original point about Sonia. But yes, to your point. Yeah. It is amazing how Sonia managed to position that as like, Oh, it was just a bad business deal that fell through. And no one really does their homework and looks into it, but it's like, no, Sonia, you committed an act of fraud. <laughs> That's why you lost the lawsuit. I know we've been on a while. We've traversed a lot. Any final thoughts or comments? connected to all this
2: i was just taking a breath and kind of it felt like such a whirlwind it went really fast um i'm so glad to meet you um chelsea it was really good to hear your comments and i'm so thinking about money right now like i'm so thinking about my position here in orange county all of a sudden i was just like oh I feel confronted by this franchise. I I, I usually do when I watch it, but in a different way because of the conversation today. Yeah, what am I doing here? But um, yeah, it was a really. I I just want to say thanks, Jamie, for including me in the conversation. I, I feel like I learned a lot, and I um I really appreciate the the sort of linking this. You know, business. I always think about these franchises as a business, and who is making money, and how are they making money, and are they doing this to make more money? And you know, is it working? Obviously, they're really trying to be on the show, but there's such a cost also. That's what I'm thinking about right now.
1: I agree. It's been such a pleasure to me. I've been such a fan of you and Jamie's previous episodes. So this was very exciting. And I I will say for me as kind of a concluding thought, I, I really do love watching these shows through a socioeconomic prism and especially seeing the sort of different types of expressions of wealth. And I think Orange County is just by far the most interesting in that regard, because it's just such a particular type of wealth that to Jamie's earlier point, we don't see or talk about enough.
0: Can I slip in one last question to you, Chelsea?
1: Of course.
0: Well, I mean, the question that's been on my mind going way back to your introduction and you talking about how you really navigated a journey for yourself from a place of like a fraught relationship with money to like what seems to me like a very abundant, like I said, thriving business I'm just curious for anyone who's listening right now, particularly women, if you had like pinpoint the most important sort of kernel or turning point in your journey of how you did that, because I know from experience, I come from my own background of fraught relationship with money, and it is quite an odyssey to heal that. And actually, for me, hugely spiritual and transformative, but... Going back to you, I'm just curious like what would you say to the listeners who are looking to transform their relationship to money, who are looking to transition from a place of god, this is so fraught and stressful and there's scarcity and deprivation and I want to change that and it's so overwhelming. What for you is has been kind of the primary turning point in that sort of healing journey with money?
1: I think it's impossible to do one without the other. I think it's a two part thing. But these are the two things that I think everyone has to do and they can be done at absolutely any income or debt level or financial situation. One is you have to become intimately aware of your financial situation. You have to check numbers every day. You have to look at balances. You have to assess net worth. You have to be as close as possible to the reality of your finances on a daily basis as possible because not all, but most people who have troubled relationships with money, they become avoidant in some capacity. And there's tons of great psychological data out there, but just by the act of my like favorite saying is what gets measured gets managed. And just by the act of measuring and understanding and looking at your money, you will become, you will want to be better with it and it will become less scary and less overwhelming. And then the second part to that is that most people tend to feel at least somewhat have trouble with money, at least in part because of their social you know, dynamics. And I think the housewives is a great expression of that because so many of these women, you know, enter fraud and go into debt and do scams and all of this in an effort to keep up appearances. But the microcosm of that exists in everyone's life and your social circle and the people you surround yourself with, even your family and your relationships. They're going to define what you feel that you have to spend, the expectations you feel you have to live in, up to, you know, how honest you feel you can be. So we recommend having at least one, but, you know, more is better, um, sort of a financial buddy, the way you would like a workout partner if you were looking to uh, go on a fitness journey, someone with whom you can talk really honestly about money, be very frank about your budget, hold each other accountable to goals, and just feel that you're able to sort of be seen and appreciated for who you are, regardless of your current financial financial state. Because again, for a lot of people, and I was one of those people, for example, if you're someone who tends toward things like credit card debt, having a social circle where you feel that you have to keep spending money in order to be accepted is almost guaranteed to keep you in that cycle.
0: Oh, God, there's so much we could talk about here. Maybe maybe I'll have a special, if you're willing to come back at some point, we can do a special just money episode. There's so much here to talk about. And I I do. I think it has such, for me, it has such spiritual Roots as well. And I think money gets a bad rap, you know, because of the stigma and the way that it's used and abused. But I think like anything else, it is just a current of energy. And, um, it's a creative force. And I just, I feel like this is true of you too. I, I, I have so much passion and pleasure in helping people to get aligned with their right relationship with money and what money actually means for them and to your point to get into like practical clear relationship with it and yeah how do they want to interface with this current of energy that exists in our world so having said that chelsea where should people find you
1: just the financial diet uh we're on youtube we do events we have books we have all kinds of stuff the financial diet
0: okay great as always you can find me at instagram jamie stein j-a-m-i-e-s-t-e-i-n and if you're interested in my work head to hollywoodreadings.com you can read more about it there i am opening the door back up for some appointments i'd kind of close the door for a little bit to catch up with my current schedule so yes if you have any interest email me let me know and i will see you guys next time
2: bye